Creating legendary products and bringing them to market takes expert design, extensive research, thoughtful branding, and strong relationships. It's a complex process, yet the innovative husband and wife co-founders of Brooklinen, Rich and Vicky Fulop, seem to have it down pat. After struggling to find luxury sheets in their price range, the duo sought to create a solution for customers like them, transforming their vision into reality with incredible success. Since Brooklinen's founding in 2014, the company has grown into the leading direct-to-consumer betting brand. Rich and Vicky joined the Ivy Podcast to share their insights and experience, telling us how we can all turn our ideas into actual products by combining tenacity, elbow grease, and a lot of passion to propel dreams into big-time business wins while prioritizing and scaling along the way. Please enjoy our conversation with Rick and Vicky Fulop. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. We are excited to be here. I'm excited to uh, have Rich and Vicky with us today to share their story, maybe give some pointers that you guys can take with you. Uh, but let's, let's just start. Let's go right into it. And let's start with a little bit of perspective. Maybe you guys can just tell us a little bit about yourselves, your background, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Sure. Uh, is my, okay. This is working? Yes. Okay, good. Just saying you share. Hi, guys. Uh, so I'm Vicki Fulop. I'm, as you said, co-founder of Brooklinen. Um, my background to entrepreneurship is a little bit untraditional. I was a career changer. I actually, after college, um, went down a more traditional path. I went to law school, and while I was there, I felt like that wasn't truly my calling. So I uh, started interning in uh, more creative fields. That's what I wanted to do in fashion and uh, entertainment and uh, landed at Tory Burch where I got to be part of the storytelling process, um, whether it's styling or visual merchandising. I just, once I got a taste of it, I fell in love and then I moved on and stayed in PR and learned a little bit more about kind of photography, uh, design, how to build buzz around a brand, and that kind of leads up to how Brooklinen came to be. But I'm gonna let Rich talk about himself first before we tell that part of the story. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, I'm also kind of untraditional in this. Uh, we started the company when I was in business school here at NYU. Prior to that, I had six years of work experience, um, three years I was working in finance, and then I also career changed because I hated it. I had a passion for sports, entertainment, and like this finance background, so I kind of married the two and worked uh, for Major League Soccer in the town and like the league office. Um, that was great, good work experience, um, learned a lot, and then that kind of you know, thrust me into business school, and then we kind of had the like aha moment, the idea to launch the company there. So. We had complementary skills in that sense of, you know, building the business from nothing. So we had a fateful trip and, yeah. Yeah, yeah so let's talk about that aha moment. How did it come to be and what were the steps that you took following it? Sure. 
Um, so we went away. We so I was working. Rich was kind of just in that phase of right before he uh, where he was in school, and we went. We actually stayed in Las Vegas, which is always a little bit embarrassing. Um, but we sat down on this bed. We had a, the best night's sleep ever, and the sheets were beautiful and soft and cool, and we fell in love, and we wanted to buy them. Um, we went downstairs, uh, I think, to the store. Uh, the hotel room sold everything. If bolted down, not, you could buy the rug, you could buy the bed, whatever it was, and the sheets were $800, and we weren't, <laughs> we weren't quite in the market for sheets at that level. So Rich started back, trying to back channel our way into getting them and, you know, trying to find who the original manufacturer was. We got really obsessed. That was, I think, just kind of our personality. And in that process, we kind of sorted out that there was either really luxurious, beautiful, but very expensive bedding. And the other end was kind of the big box store experience where it's just an overwhelming amount of options and it's a chore. It's not a fun experience. You just go in and maybe grab the first thing you see and it's super confusing and not fun. And we were like, where's the Warby Parker sheets? At that time, there was nothing else other than Warby that uh, was direct to consumer um, that just did a beautiful product, did it well, and um, was a great value. So that's kind of how the idea came to be. And we started working on it because we, we learned that we could build in efficiencies to create a really beautiful product, but without all those markups if we did direct to consumer. So you make the decision to go into this. It's a leap of faith. Yeah. Do you go to friends and family and say, hey guys, we're going into the sheet business now. And, and if so, were there, were there doubters? Were there people who were trying to tell you not to do it? And how do you take that negativity and turn it into something positive? Yeah, there were a lot of doubters. Everybody was a doubter. Um, <laughs> it's a really, this was in 2012 that this happened, so like the idea phase. We launched the company in 2014, but at that point, um, you know, and we spoke to a lot of investors that we, I had to like network at school to get introductions. Everybody thought it was a really like low-tech, stupid idea at the time. Um, friends and family thought we were crazy. I'm in a top 10, you know, business school program and I'm getting like the bed sheets business. I remember specifically calling, did a lot of cold calling to factories as well to find manufacturers that were really can make what we were looking for. And one guy said like, I haven't heard of anybody entering this industry that was under the age of 50 in my entire whole life. And that's like kind of the signal that there was opportunity there. When you hear that kind of stuff, like a lot of no or like nobody's doing this, that's actually like a very encouraging thing if you read it the right way and you're motivated enough. So that was actually a lot of fuel that we kind of needed to push forward because we knew there was an opportunity because no one else was doing this at the time. Yeah. And a lot sometimes I approach it as people project their fears onto you that they think starting a business is really hard or impossible in some way. Like you can't do it. It's not secure. So you, if you have an idea where you feel really confident and you see a path to where you can execute it, you have to have faith in yourself um, and push forward despite the negativity because there will always be that. You have to learn how to filter the positive, construct, you know, constructive criticism and the stuff that's just like it's too hard or you can't figure it out because you can. So you have the seed, you have this idea, and, and then you went forward and you, you kind of launched a, a non-traditional focus group, right? You went to bars. You went to you know restaurants and whatever and libraries whatever it might be. And you spoke to people. What information were you looking for, and what did you do with that? Sure. Um, so the overarching hypothesis around the business was that 
you know, at first I thought I was the customer, like me, myself, I was a guy in late 20s. And it kind of occurred to me that no one has ever marketed it to me before in the space, like outwardly. Like you, you guys have probably seen our subway ads and stuff around the city and on social media, and but there was like nothing really going on uh, like that I could see through my eyes of what like people pitching me. So I thought like, why is that? And what can I do to kind of buck the trend? So we went like places where we thought millennials that had similar shopping habits were, and we didn't overthink it. So we went to the department stores where they were going as the de facto choice. So we went to you know Bed Bath Beyond or wherever it was at the time. Then we also went to like the Stump Towns or Blue Bottles or ABC. bars, like you said. And then we would um, you know talk to people and survey them really really quickly. Say you know just have you know thirty second you know two questions not two it was like four questions. It was do you shop online? Yes. Do you buy clothes and like accessories online? Yes. Do you shop for home goods online? Nah, not really. You know, what kind of bed sheets do you have? I don't know. It was like kind of whittling off at that point, but like everybody did do a lot of like their core shopping online. So again, these are like more hints of like the opportunity and you know, would people be receptive to it um, is really what we're looking for. And it's like you have to be careful how you ask the questions because you don't want to lead the people too much because people just tend to like yes you at that point. So if they don't know what you're getting at and like what the end game is, then they you can't really steer them. So that was like kind of the goal of like asking them those clothing questions and other stuff in advance. And then to continue on with going to the people, right? You, you're a Kickstarter business. So why Kickstarter? And, and can you just kind of talk a bit about how that went? Obviously it went well, we're here today, but I think it's a really interesting story to, to share. Yeah. Um, so the reason, part of the reason why we went to Kickstarter was because, you know, we needed some money to start the business. We didn't have it ourselves, and it was really hard to raise funding um, when we had an idea. People thought it was crazy. They were, like, shopping for sheets online. Like, people need to feel them in stores. This is not going to happen. So we wanted to treat Kickstarter as a proof of concept um, and kind of as pre-sales. We had by then found a manufacturer willing to take a chance on us. We ran um, a set of samples and we basically set up a little bit of a PR strategy to get our campaign out there to see if people would be interested. Um, so what we did is we packed our uh, like a U-Haul van with uh, 30 sets of sheets and drove around delivering them to bloggers and writers or anyone that covered home decor and said, hey, like launching a Kickstarter on this day, try these sheets out. If you like them, please share our story. This is what we're trying to do. And product had to speak for itself. You know, we'd done the work for it and people really fell in love and that shot our Kickstarter way up. Um, our goal was 50K. Um, and uh, we ended up doing just under 250. So that's when we increased sales. So each, each of those was a sale and their reward was a sheet set. And that's when we really felt like we were onto something and people were looking for what we had been looking for as well. Let, let's keep talking about that. There, there's a lot of products on Kickstarter and, and these crowdfunding you know, websites. What makes a good product? What do you think creates a snowball effect like yours had? So when you're starting the business, the most important thing is that you are providing a solution for people for a problem, whether they know about it or they don't know about it. You have to identify that and solve for it. So I think we did that really, really well. And people had this problem. It, 
but they just didn't really know it. They would only encounter it when that time came that, you know, their sheets ripped, they moved, they stained their sheets, whatever was the trigger, they would go. And then there was like this moment of confusion of where do I go? What's the best? Who do I, like there was so much confusion. We thought if we could get in front of that and, you know, inspire people and say, these are the best, you're not thinking about it, but you should be, and, you know, outwardly market and prove the concept. And now we have so much social proof behind us. Um, we have uh, you know, 20,000 reviews on our site from, certain, from customers. We have, you know, influencers. We have media. We have magazines. We have really have everywhere else. But it's about actually getting in front of people and solving a problem. So the differentiation was people were like, oh, yeah, you know, I haven't thought about my sheets in a while. I want to back this business because I can use the product. You know, it's not like a gadget at the yeah. end of the day. It's something that's actually usable in solving the problem. And I don't want to schlep it on the subway. Like, people were into that. <laughs> So, so people did buy in, and, and so on Kickstarter, excuse me, people buy into a philosophy, right? Not necessarily a product. They don't have it in hand. How did this shape the way that you ran your business, how you grew it, and, and was there a little added pressure because people bought in before even receiving the product? Yeah, there was a ton of pressure. It was really, well, every, I can't say this is like unique to us. With every Kickstarter, there's pressure to deliver. And then as more people buy as a pre-sale, the pressure kind of just mounts and it's more. So we did the calculation for 50,000 units. We thought we'd have to ship you know, 250, 250 to 500 boxes. Suddenly we're packing 2,000 boxes and it's just the two of us. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so you know, that's a, something that you encounter that's you know, really kind of throws you a curveball at that time. And you know, it's just about. Um, sorry, what was the uh, the pressure on the oh, people? Right. So yeah. they, yeah, people yeah, want you're, updates you're, all the time. Like, yeah, it's so, constant. Yeah. So you don't have infrastructure in place at that point, also. So yeah. there's like not only the product stuff that you pro promise people, but there's also the customer service element of people asking questions. You know, what like they, you're supposed to be the subject matter matter expert on this, and you have little to no experience in the space. Only what you've taught yourself or other people taught you in the like, immediate past at that point. So the pressure of you know, becoming the expert really, really quickly and trustworthy source, source for people, which we were, we did our homework, yeah. but it was just a lot of volume to deal with. And then it's you know, to make things happen, you take for granted, like, does your package arrive via UPS, FedEx, DHL? Like, you gotta figure that stuff out on the fly. And you know, we didn't have a plan for international customers and duties and tariffs and stuff like that. That just it just keeps coming. So like the pressure of like delivery yeah. is a lot. Or even to hold all the products. Like we didn't have a loading dock. That's not something we knew before. Um, but when the sheets arrived and we couldn't roll them in, like that was meant. Rich and a friend were running around in the rain, like kind of bringing things into this like big space that we had. <laughs> Rented, but yeah, like little logistics things like that were pressures that we learned on the fly, I would say. So similarly to, to when you pre-started the you know, company and you went out and you created these focus groups, you're really big on data and customer-centric data um, even now. So what data are you looking at? You know, what have you learned from it and what actions have you taken um, in analyzing it? Um, so yeah, I think we can both speak on that. but. Data we collect from customers is where we want to be really nimble and iterative in responses. Customers always write in. One of my best examples is um, we came out with sheets and they said, we love your sheets so much. Can you tell us where to get comforters? And we heard it so much that we learned, okay, like we need to be responsive and start making comforters. Or 
Um, you know, we collect that via trends, just we see com uh, customers writing in about things or requests over a certain amount of time. That's something that we track. Um, I don't know if all companies do to be able to be responsive and agile or long side, short side tags on our fitted sheets or envelope closures. It's just requests from customers that enable us to learn from them and be super responsive and include them in the process of product development so they don't feel just marketed to, but that they're part of the business um, and, and the growth of the business and the creation of it. And you guys keep innovating and you keep creating new products and you're growing rapidly. So with such rapid growth, how do you balance you know, innovation and, and still fulfilling the, the business that, that you still have? That's, that's hard. Um, it's really hard to like stay new at things until like you have to keep innovating and keep coming out with new things that are newsworthy and gets people excited. At the end of the day, your customers that you're constantly building every single day, those are your biggest active advocates. So you have to like really please and delight them, but you also have to like, keep delivering on promises of innovation. And that's it doesn't have to be the craziest thing. You know, if they're looking for new colors or patterns or new weights of blankets from us in our space, for instance, it's we have to deliver on that stuff for them. And they're our best customers that come back and buy more and buy more. And it should be a sure thing in the future for them and for us that they're going to be our top support, that when we launch something new, they're going to trust us and immediately buy it, even if they don't know too much about it. Let's talk a little bit about time management then. So what tips do you have for it? You're running a, a business, you know, it's growing fast, it's growing rapidly. There's probably new projects every day, right? So how do you manage your time best to, to get it all done? Um, that's, it's really hard. Time management is really tough. Um, I think we try to keep meetings to a minimum. That's like something you proactively have to do. Um, uh, what else do we do for time management? I, it's tough. I mean, um, I think a delegation being yeah. really good at delegation is really, really important. So you hire really, really talented people yeah. around you when you get like we did everything ourselves as long as we possibly could yeah. until we couldn't anymore, either because there was not enough time or we were no longer like the best people to do it. So if that's, you know, certain things around analytics or design or operations, you hire people and then you trust them and you delegate. So that frees yeah. you up to do new things and keep innovating when you have the time available to do those things that are expected of you when you're the leadership. Um, you don't get stuck in the weeds so much anymore and that's really how you have to balance it and you know, get a good team behind you. How about work-life balance? Like, do you find yourself bringing it home with you and, and, and you, know, you leave the office, you get home and you're talking about the day at the office or how, how do you kind of separate the two? We're actually okay with that. You just, I think you have to have the self-control within yourself to turn it off at a certain point because your your brain is, you're not going to be as good for the company or as productive if you're going 24-7 because it kind of, the results that you get dwindle um, if you never stop. So we give ourselves time to just actually physically just cut it off. Um, you know, we watch like Game of Thrones, like we watch TV together, just we give ourselves time to recharge because it helps even like going for walks like hikes uh going on vacation sometimes that's when you can take a step back and actually reflect and maybe think about the business and the big picture um and what next steps to take it it helps uh but yeah having like firm clear boundaries with ourselves keeping the phones out of the bedroom even though it's hard um you know things like that 
And I'm sure when we open it up to the Q&A, we can all discuss our Game of Thrones theories, and, and we'll get to that also. But um, let, let's talk about marketing a bit, right? So everyone here has probably seen your ads on the subway, and, and you were talking about you know before you launched, you you loaded up a U-Haul, and you 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 know got really creative there. If they've seen your subway ads, they know that you're super creative in that front. There's a new campaign with with people's pets and and cuddling in bed. It's it's great. How, first of all, how do you how do you keep it fresh? Where do you get the ideas from? And then what's a good way for an entrepreneur to market specifically to their target demo? Um, well, oh, my mic? Okay. I think for, for how do we get ideas, um, that's a tough one. So, uh, for the pet campaign, it was basically like, customers are at the forefront of what we do. We want to just always create this best end-to-end experience. We want them to be part of who we are. It's not like we're just marketing to someone, but we started out as our customer. Our friends started out as our customer. So it's always this inclusive thing. And how do we build on our community and also thank them for helping us get to where we are. And especially because we were bootstrapped the first two years of our business, like the customers are so integral to the Brooklyn brand. So we were thinking like, how do we highlight them? Like, and they were Instagramming really cute pictures of their pets. So it was kind of like a feeling of these are adorable and we want to highlight our customers and their pets. And let's give people like a good feeling when they get on the subway because we all know the slog um, and the commute. Like I just wanted to give someone a chuckle. Um, so I think that's how that idea came about. Um, but yeah, it comes from all different ways. I don't know, Rich, you... Um, other approaches to it too. I think it's just uh, it, inspiring people and being yeah. surprising also because we're like now people are a little jaded by it because there are, we have a lot of competitors and there's companies yeah. in adjacent spaces that also do a lot of advertising to, um, as we do. But it it's about being like surprising. That's in either the content or the messaging. Um, you know, we use stuff like kind of marketing like sheets that feel like the cool side of the pillow, like that kind of stuff like resonates with people because they know what that feels like also and they can picture it. And it's something that's desirable also. So kind of communicating that stuff. It's not like, hey, we sell sheets by sheets. It's more of like messaging that communicates the emotion that we want them to feel and that stuff. Yeah. And how would you speak to a friend or what would you send to a friend? We just want it to feel like it's real and lived in. That was the thing with the Brooklyn and also that we started out that we didn't want our brand to communicate something that was very fussy and like that felt like you couldn't touch. We felt like that's what was also missing in the marketplace is something that felt a little bit more alive in the betting brand because there wasn't a lot of brand loyalty in that space in general. Um, yeah. So it's been all about surprising people. What has surprised you the most about this journey? Yeah, I think it's just how much more difficult it continues to get. So you hit milestones, you know, two years ago, we was just the two of us. Now our team is over 50 people. So it's a lot to adjust to. I used to do a lot of, I did all the customer service to start, and then I used to do a lot of marketing and operations, like everything. Now it's like a lot of managing people, managing the team, managing company procedures and like big picture type stuff. And that's like really a challenge that kind of mounts and I didn't recognize that. I thought I'd always get to do you know, the fun stuff, I guess you could say, but now we have people that we've hired that we vetted a lot to do that stuff and it just becomes more challenging to kind of steer the ship over time uh, as it grows. It's, it's very daunting and you don't really know it until you experience it. Yeah. I'd also 
and communication is an interesting challenge because when you start out with a small company, you're all in one room, so everybody knows what's going on just by osmosis. You're all talking about it, and you're all looped in. But as you get larger, oh, sorry, as you get larger, um, you have to think about making sure that you communicate and share things that are going on with the company or new initiatives um, to have each team, like say the customer service team should be prepared for an email that's going out that might um, increase their the load of tickets. Just uh, being a proactive communicator in a way that you've never had to be um, is an interesting challenge that we didn't anticipate, but you know, address, but yeah. What lessons in communication have you learned, you know, in, in throughout this in terms of communicating with a team and, and getting the job done and maybe delegation also? Um, I mean, it's basic stuff. It's just, oh, sorry, learning um, how to maybe just having where before we kind of expect you, everyone would just know what's going on. Like now Rich has to, and me to some extent, have a touch base with every team to see what status um, everybody's at um, to keep projects moving forward, uh, maybe to send things around larger. It's just, it slows processes down. It makes us a little bit more efficient. Yeah. What about the out-of-office support system? You know, who is that? How important has it been for you? Wait, can, you uh, like FCR? can you elaborate more on that? The friends, family, the people who you go to who kind of root you, you know, cheer you on, like how important has that been and what impact have they had maybe during the growth and then today? Yeah, I mean, our first investors were our friends and family. They believed in us and they gave us just enough money really to prove the concept and do the Kickstarter. So it's been really, really crucial to us from the get-go because um, you have a lot of naysayers. So to have people that like believe in you and think you're smart and savvy enough to pull it off and that you know what you're doing is really, really important. And then you know, as you grow down the road, you have mentors and people that like you could count on either in, in the industry or just in business in general or professors that I've had that I can count on for certain subject matter expertise that you know, I could pick up. So it's, it's been very valuable. Yeah. So you mentioned the Kickstarter. You know, the Kickstarter grew the business, but then you had the opportunity to continue the growth and you received a round of traditional you know, investor funding. What's been the difference between the two um, and, and how would you suggest that entrepreneurs determine which methodology is better for them? I mean, it's always better to not raise money if you have the option to. And it seems counterintuitive, but you should go. What actually was very beneficial to us was that we went a really long time without raising. And then it was strange how it happened. We tried, we tried, we tried, and then we stopped. And then we said, we have you know, enough to do and prove out what we think will happen. And then when we proved it out, like money and offers flooded into us. So we were on the receiving end of that. So we were A, more advantageous because the company appreciated and value so much that we were able to give away a smaller piece. And B, we learned a lot by being more nimble and um, frugal in the early days. So it was very advantageous. A lot of companies get too much money too early. They don't know how to properly run the business. And that's like a real Achilles heel for them. Um, yeah, and then that's generally our perspective on it is like how, be as lean and as nimble as you can be for as long as you could be. And you have to learn a lot more that way. And you can premier yourself very much as leaders, just in terms of creative control, in terms of uh, executive control, so that if you do or when you do raise money, um, your investors have a lot of trust in you. 
um, so they can be as hands-off as you'd like unless you want them to be very involved, but you kind of have proven yourself to be uh, the leader of your company and you have their support, but uh, not too much pressure, I would say. Yeah, and uh, to answer your question, sorry, yeah. more directly, that, uh, <laughs> um, it's depends yeah. how different it is um, depending on the investor. It's really a case-by-case -case basis. Like our investor, First Mark Capital, we chose them because they're great people, had a great portfolio, and their philosophy was more like, you know, laissez-faire and letting us do what we want to do and what we've been doing, not trying to change course and, you know, reinvent what we're doing. So it really depends. I've heard stories from others that are like very hands-on, set very, very firm goals that they have to, you know, be held to and just really kind of squeeze the lemon for everything that's in there. Our team doesn't really do that. Is there something that you've learned that you know now that you wish you knew back when you were first starting? Yeah, I would say just overall how much more difficult it gets at every phase. So, you know, first it was just pulling off the Kickstarter and we thought, you know, $250,000 was, <coughs> sorry, it was a ton of money at that point. And it is a lot of money, but like compared to, you know, how the business has grown and mature, it's really like, quite small in a month compared to what what is going on now. And with that becomes a lot of complications, albeit taxes, insurance, lawyers, you know, team building. Like there's a lot of complications that kind of arise that you can't really prepare for and you don't know until you actually it hits you and you have to encounter it. So uh, that's like the type of stuff I wish I knew. If I if I knew it, I don't know if I would have been able to do anything about it honestly yeah. at the time, but like I wish I'd known. Is there anything that you would have done differently? No, I, I get asked that all the yeah. time. No, I, honestly, yeah. Um, yeah, we've been very, very careful, and you know, obviously, there's little things here or there, you know, and certain things that we've done, either you know, marketing or whatever, but like nothing that's like huge, a big mistake that we've done. Um, we kind of have the philosophy that you make a first impression every single day, so yeah. it's an opportunity to reinvent yourself and keep evolving. So we don't really harp too much on what happened you know, yesterday or in the past because tomorrow, you know, the new day, new people, new customers, just opportunity. Let's, let's look to tomorrow and, and many, many tomorrows. Where do you think technology will bring business 10 years from today? I think a lot of more business uh, technology. Uh, if the majority of e-commerce, at least shopping, is discovered on mobile but still is happening on desktop, I think that it's going to be happening on mobile um, eventually for the, for the most part. Um, I don't know. How about you, Rich? I think that's a huge change in shopping through Instagram. Just yeah, I mean, people, the world of shopping is totally different. Yeah, people ask us, you know, Another question we get all the time is, uh, you know, do we sell in brick and mortar? Do we want to sell to brick and mortar stores? And the answer is always no. And the reason is because right now, about 10% of all commerce, you know, all commerce in the country is on is online, is e-commerce. But in six years, that's supposed to go only up to like 20% or so. So there's like so much headroom over there. And if the market is moving in this direction, we don't want to move backwards. I think that all shoppers, all you know, people in general, all commerce is moving more towards digital. So that's really where we want to be and we want to optimize and have the best experience. Even if that means desktop, mobile, where, wherever it is, it's just about yeah. like being best in class there. Yeah. Has technology and, and, you know, everyone has an opinion, everyone says something, and they have a very open platform to say it anywhere they want. 
How does that impact the way you do your business? Do you pay attention to it? Do you know what what does that mean for you as as business owners? Yeah, we do. We respond. Every channel is an important. It is the, a channel like I'm thinking. You mean like social media or like a Google review yeah. or anything? Every opportunity is to build an, a relationship with a customer, and the way that we think of it is that it's a lifelong relationship. So whether they've had a bad experience or a good one. We are super responsive. Um, if they've had something bad, we try to take care of them and really um, turn that around, like make them feel good that somebody there actually cares, someone on the Brooklyn and End actually cares about what they're going through and supports them so that even if whatever their product or whatever happened didn't work out, they're going to remember that Brooklyn Inn took care of them and will come back and try something else with us. Um, but every channel is super important. It's a way to connect with you know, a member that may join your community um, and to inspire uh, also. Who inspires you, you know, outside of your customers? Are there specific leaders that you were researching and, and looking into? What what does kind of, you know, light that spark for you guys? Uh, do you want to go first? I have to. I love, yeah, you can go first. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we run our business like in a very old school way in, some, you know, we're a, a family business here, right? That's, I guess, right? I never even referred to it as that before, but we are. And my parents were entrepreneurs also. They had like a deli and a bodega that I would work in when I was little. So I would stock the shelves, talk to customers, and, you know, kind of learning that like the experience of like the regulars that would come in and like the service aspect of it was really, really important. And learning that from my parents and like, even though their business was quite small, it was like a mom and pop shop, it was kind of like those business you know, little things that you pick up on them. And we've managed to scale it and blow it out. So, you know, our customer service, we treat every interaction that way. And that's the mentality we have is like, this is, could be, you know, this could be the most important person in the world that you're talking to. Uh, it could be the first time or the last time, but you never know. So treat it as like the most important thing. And you can do that eye to eye, but we've tried to adapt that to like a digital space. Um. Yeah, similar story for me and my parents came here when they were 37, uh, also with myself from the former Soviet Union and built a whole new life here um, and we were able, there's the doctors able to do it successfully so that just um, strength despite adversity or doubters, they had a whole lot of that. Um, they certainly inspired me to know that you can build something from nothing. Um, and also on a totally separate note, I my because I know you had mentioned books, uh, Phil Knight from Nike. Uh, his book, Shoe Dog, is something I go back to all the time. Are there three books, or, or I'll even open it up, three books, podcasts, blogs, any form of media that you think that every business owner, entrepreneur should read before they dive into some form of endeavor? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me, a couple books that pop into mind are for like the entrepreneur is Shoe Dog was a good one, she said. Yeah. Um, also, Steve Jobs' biography by Walter Isaacson was really, really good. You could see how he built Apple. Um, it was really, really in-depth, a really, really good story. Uh, it's been made a movie a few times now, but it's not as good as the book. Um, yeah, those are the two that jump out, that like really tell the story, how to build something from nothing when you have an idea and you're like so certain it's going to succeed. and. You do anything in press to make it happen. Yeah, they talk about not just their successes, but their failures. Like they're vulnerable with you, so it's true. Like learning experiences and, and relatable experiences, and also um, the how, how I built this podcast. I feel like I feel like that. It's a good one. 
We have time for one or two more questions. We're going to open it up to, to everyone here. So thank you for the questions you want to ask. We'll get to them in a minute. Um, I want to go back to just the very beginning again, when you had spoken about, you know, you, you kind of made career changes, right? You had these, these roads that you thought you were going on, and you, you totally swerved. Not the easiest thing in the world to do, and, and it's something that's, that's pretty common for people, whether they've experienced it now or they haven't. What advice do you have for, for making that change, taking the leap? I'm sure there's a ton of fear that goes into it. You know, what, what advice do you have for people experiencing that? have to rip off the band-aid and do it. Um, it's scary, but it's also a way of where you're completely free and you've got the whole uh, rest of your life ahead of you. So you kind of have to just bite the bullet and dive in. It's like calculated risk. It's high risk, high reward. But if you know, you've got a true passion, um, obviously try if you can to intern or test it out, do informational interviews to see the, what people's experiences are in the field that you are exploring. Um, so you can maybe test it out a little bit before you completely change. But otherwise, yeah, I would take a job in the industry that you want, even if it's a sidestep or a step down, if it's something you're really passionate about, um, because it, for us at least, was very worthwhile. Anything you want to add or you echo it and agree? <laughs> I, I, I agree. And I, but also, I would say um, it's never too late also, no matter what age you are, to go pursue something that you're passionate about and build something. Um, if you're driven and you're hungry, you can do it. It's just you have to put like the time in. It's really no one's, you got to have the mentality that nobody's going to help you. And that's what kind of happened to me. People told me and what I experienced is, I have to like make my own magic. When I say I, I mean us, but like I say it personally in my head, like it's on me to like work more. I don't have a boss telling me mm -hmm. to do that. It's like you just have to push yourself and make your own magic on that front. Yeah. And ask, but ask anyone and everyone for help. You have to really put yourself out there. Like if you're doing a Kickstarter, we had to do the thing where we shared it with our whole email list and our whole Facebook friend list and ask them to share. You have to include people in the experience, but really put yourself out there. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.